series on the drama of Scripture. We're taking eight weeks to talk about the four acts of the drama of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And there's another four words you could use to describe, to describe this, this drama, ought, is, can, and will. On your sermon outline, we've got it listed here. And so creation describes the way things ought to be by God's design. Uh, the fall describes the way the world actually is due to the presence of sin. Uh, redemption is, is, it suggests what can be through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then restoration describes what will be when God restores all things. And so uh, ought, is, can, and will. Hopefully that's helpful. And sometimes that's, that's more helpful in communicating with people than creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So share that with three people this week if you can. So the past two weeks we've discussed creation from Genesis 1 and 2. And there we saw some very foundational things. Uh, God created everything and everyone and he pronounced it good. And the crown of his creation was humanity, male and female. And God uh, blessed them, and he gave them this charge to cultivate and keep the garden. They had, only one, they had only one limitation. They could eat of any tree of the garden except this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because God is the creator and the owner of all things, he has a right to give commands. He has a right to limit our lives. And so today we're going to begin the first of two sermons on uh, the fall. And we call it the fall because humanity fell from this place of perfection and through the rebellion introduced all sorts of chaos and heartache into the world. It's devastating consequences. Today we're going to focus exclusively on Genesis 3. Next week Brian will teach about the fall and talk about what the rest of Scripture says about the fall and how it looks back at Genesis 3. But the fall explains why life in this world is so difficult. It explains why you and I experience so much heartache, and sometimes we just sigh with this, oh, this life is so maddeningly difficult. It explains why people fight with each other. It explains why some people hate others and kill them. It explains why relationships are so hard. It explains why work is so often a four-letter word to people, explains why nations go to battle against other nations. It explains why we're not able to do the very thing that we actually want to do. We want to do something, but we find we can't do it. And so the fall explains all these things, and it's so vital that we understand not only creation, but then the fall, uh, because it's really the diagnosis of the human race. And if you don't understand the diagnosis, if you don't buy the diagnosis, you're not going to value the remedy the redemption that's offered through Jesus Christ. And so it's real important we get clear about why there is so much evil in this world, both out there and within our own hearts. If we're not clear on that, we won't value what Jesus wants to do, both within us and in the world around us. So today we look at Genesis 3, and I, I just have to tell you up front, if you've never read this, this chapter is like nothing you've ever experienced before. Okay, there is a talking snake. Uh, there is a, a tree whose fruit, if you eat from it, it will open your eyes in ways you can't predict. Uh, there is uh, the, the Adam and Eve, they, they hear the sound of God walking 
among the trees of the, of the garden. And yet this chapter describes some fundamental realities that you and I experience day in and day out. And so we'll consider the first half of the chapter in some detail. Due to time constraints, I'll summarize the second half. But the first reality we see is, is that God has an adversary, and God's people have an adversary. So Genesis 3 doesn't explain the ultimate origin of evil. Evil is present when you open up Genesis 3. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So we're introduced to this serpent. And we're not told as much as we would like to know about this serpent. But subsequent scriptures look back and identify this this serpent as Satan, as God's adversary. Uh, The last book of the Bible, Revelation 20, verse 2, will refer to the dragon, the serpent of old, clearly a reference to Genesis 3. Uh, who is the devil and Satan. And so our best understanding from a multitude of scriptures is that Satan is a fallen angel. He is a created being. He's not in any way on par with God. He is a, a created being. He rebelled against God, and he is going to be in this state of fallenness for eternity. There's no redemption for fallen angels. And so he's powerful, but he's not omnipotent like God is. He's a created being. He's under the authority of God. That's clear from scriptures like Job 1 and 2. But here the serpent is described in terms that immediately suggest an inversion of the created order. He's described as a beast of the field. And in Genesis 2, the beasts of the field were named by the man, and therefore the, the man and the woman to rule over the beasts of the field. But here the beast of the field, this serpent, tries to Uh, tries to deceive and essentially to rule over the woman. And so the simple point in this this first observation is that if you and I are going to find our way in the biblical story and we're going to participate with God in what he's doing, we need to understand and make peace with the fact that we are born into a world that's that's a battlefield, okay? God has an enemy. He has an adversary, and he's playing for keeps. And his desire is to thwart everything that God wants to do in this world. And so if we're ignorant or naive about the spiritual battle, then we will reenact daily or hourly the deception that we see here in Genesis 3. The good news, we'll talk about it when we get to redemption, is that Jesus' death and resurrection and exaltation are sufficient to undo in our lives and ultimately in all of creation what Satan is doing. And so in, in 1 John 3, 8, we're told this, the devil has sinned from the beginning. The son of God, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And so if you put your faith in Christ and you enter into this, this relationship with God, you need to anticipate that one of the things he wants to do is undo the works of the devil in your life. And through you, he wants to undo the works of the devil in the world around you. And of course, we're not passive in this process. We're to be vigilant. Some of you have a military background and you know a lot better than I do that if you're really in battle, it requires a sober-mindedness. It, envir- it requires you to be on high alert. And so not surprisingly, we're told in 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him 
firm in your faith. And so if we want to participate fully with God in the biblical story, we need to be aware we're in a spiritual battle, uh, whether we realize it or not. And sometimes it's more overt and sometimes it's more subtle, but we are in a spiritual battle. God has enemies. If you side with God, you too will, will experience this opposition. We see in 1 through 6 uh, the nature of temptation and sin. I don't know if you noticed the question that the serpent asked the woman, but there in the middle of uh, verse 1, and he, the serpent, said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So he seems to be intentionally distorting the, the command that God had given. He says, as God said, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. The actual command was, uh, you, you, should, you can eat from any tree of the garden except one. And so the serpent asked whether God has said you couldn't eat. And then the woman said to the serpent, verse 2, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And everything she says there jives with the command that was given in Genesis 2, except that very last statement, or touch it. God hadn't, we don't have recorded that God said you shouldn't touch it. Now, if you're not supposed to eat from the tree, you probably shouldn't touch it. You shouldn't climb its branches. You shouldn't love it. You shouldn't get too familiar with it. But, uh, but you see what's happening in her mind. She's going from this, this great freedom. God gives you permission from, to eat from all the trees except this one. And she's focusing on the limitation, the one limitation out of all the trees. And that's what happens with temptation. That's what happens with obsessions. That's what happens with addictions. Instead of, instead of focusing on God's lavish generosity, God has given us all this freedom we focus on the one limitation. This is the one thing God says we can't do. And the serpent picks up on the last statement where she says, or you will die, which God had said. And we read in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. And so this is a frontal assault on the veracity of God. He's challenging God's words here. Look at verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. He says there, you will be like God. And if you've been reading Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, immediately you'd say, wait a minute, the woman is already like God. In contrast to all the other beings, she and the man were created in God's image. And so the insinuation here, being like God in that way, that's not enough. There's another way. There's a deeper way that you can be like God. Your eyes will be open, and you will know not only good, you will also know evil. And, and so far, the woman had only known good. In the garden, everything was good. God created it good. Everything she experienced was good. She had no experiential or intellectual knowledge of evil, but the serpent tells her God is actually holding back his best. And so if you eat from this tree, you will not only know good, you will know evil, and you will be like God. And what we'll see in, in a few minutes is that the, the serpent was telling a partial truth. Uh, her eyes would be open, uh, and they, they would have a knowledge of good and evil. But what he didn't tell her is that they would ultimately be less 
like God because the image of God within them would be marred. They would still be created in God's image. You find that stated very clearly after the fall, but the image of God within them would be distorted. Something would be lost. It would need to be restored. And the serpent didn't tell them that terrible suffering uh, would be introduced into the world. And he was flat out lying when he said, you shall not die because a very real death took place. We come to verse 6, and we have a verbal connection to chapter 1. There we saw that God saw that it was good. He created and saw that it was good. And here we see the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And her evaluation is going to be in stark contrast to what God had said. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And so God's evaluation was all the other trees are good for food. All the other trees are a delight. Enjoy them. And so she's, she's landed in another place. She, she has concluded, no, that the serpent's suggestion that this tree was good, and it's desirable to make one wise. And that's exactly where the serpent tried to lead her. She's no longer satisfied with God's wisdom. She's no longer satisfied with God's knowledge, namely the knowledge of good. She also wants this this wisdom apart from God. And her actions are described very quickly, very decisively. She took from its fruit, and she ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And we've been told the woman's thought processes as we've gone down, but not the man's. He's, he's strangely passive. All we're told is he took it and he ate. And this is all the more significant because the original command was given to him. But in this process, he's passive. He's passive. And as Brian will, will talk about next week, uh, this original sin has polluted all of humanity. In Psalm 51, David will, will, will make the comment that he was born in sin. In Ephesians 2.1, Paul would say that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. And so now, you know it as well as I do, we sin by nature and we sin by choice. And so it's the most natural thing in the world. You don't have to teach a kid how to sin. You don't have to teach a kid how to be selfish, how to lie, how to hurt other people. Uh, it, it's, it's natural. We sin by nature and we also sin by choice. God commands us to do something and we say no. God forbids us to do something and we say, actually, I think I'll do that. And so we, we reenact this, this rebellion in the garden over and over. And when we do, we're basically following the thought processes of the first woman. We are convinced that we know better than God does what is good for us. Now, that's, that's the, the bad news. The good news is that our redemption, which is the third act of the drama of Scripture, our redemption will, will address all these things. Initially, it will involve you, you enter into a relationship with God through Jesus. It will involve this forgiveness of sin and this freedom from the guilt and the power of sin. And as you keep walking with Jesus, we become transformed by the renewing of our minds to the point where we get to the point in our minds where we agree with God once again. Uh, Paul would say, we have the mind of Christ. And so on a heart level, on a deep, deep level, we agree with him what is good and what is evil. We begin thinking and feeling 
like Jesus himself. And so restoration, so that's redemption. Restoration, which is the final act of the drama of Scripture, it will involve the absolute completion of this process, okay? The battle is over. We are changed in an instant. And uh, we'll talk about that the last two weeks. Well, let's consider the consequences and the curses of the fall. And the one we see right off the bat is, is often called shame and blame. Uh, we see it in the lives of Adam and Eve. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Before this, they were naked and unashamed. You have a sense they, that category never, never entered their mind, uh, being unclothed. But their eyes were open, they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves, made themselves loin coverings. And so the serpent had told them, when you eat from this tree, your eyes will be open. But instead of becoming like God in some superhuman sense, they experienced this, this shame. They knew that they were naked, and they immediately covered themselves up. Uh, with clothes made from fig trees, fig leaves. And so, you know, we think about what happened to them and the fallout in our lives, but think about the heart of God at that, at that instant. And so instead of this first couple being fruitful and multiplying and spreading his glory to every corner of the earth, they're going to be fruitful, they're going to multiply, but they're going to send sin and, and devastation to every corner of the earth. There's going to be violence, envy, strife to every corner of the earth. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What an amazing thing. Before the fall, when they heard God, you, you could imagine their eyes brightened, something in their heart leapt, and they're like, let's go talk to God. There's God. We can go ask him questions. We can just watch what he's doing. We can just soak in his wisdom. And so that was before the fall. But after they sinned, look what happened. They heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Instead of going toward God, they went away from God, they hid in the woods, okay? They hid in the woods from God. They didn't want to make con eye contact with God. And this is one of the most, most predictable, most pervasive effects of sin and shame. We hide from God. We don't want to hear, we don't want to face him. We don't want to hear his words anymore. And in the following verses, God interviews the man and the woman to draw out their thoughts. And so verse 9, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you. And he's honest here. This is really good. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. That's the first mention of fear in the Bible. Before they sinned, absolutely no reason to fear God, no reason to hide. Verse 11, and God said, who told you that you were naked? And then here's a yes or no question. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Okay, that's a yes or no question, right? Have you, yes or no? Listen to the answer. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Okay, 
So much for bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, okay? This is a long way from Genesis 1. And this is on, on that first day, this again, every generation since, husbands have blamed their wives for their own misbehavior. You want to know why I went out and sinned? The woman, the woman you gave me, that's why I did that. Okay, you know how I know this? Because I've done it a few hundred times, maybe a few thousand times, okay? It's just the most natural thing. We experience this shame and we blame somebody else, okay? Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so at least she admitted she'd been persuaded by the serpent and she ate from the tree. And in verses 14 through 21, and we're going to pick up a little speed here, but, but, but we have God's comments to the serpent, God's comments to the woman, God's comments to the man. And some of these are pronouncements of judgment, especially with the serpent. Uh, others of them are just basically statements of consequence. Because of your sin, this is the way life is now. This is what you're going to experience. In verses 14 and 15, we see the defeat of the serpent. And because of, of the serpent's role in tempting the woman, when the woman, God pronounces his judgment. And verse 15 makes clear that we're talking a lot more, we're talking about a lot more than the experience of reptiles, okay, when, when God makes this statement. It speaks of the ongoing hostility between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's talking to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so the serpent and the woman are now representatives of their own kind. The serpent will represent all of those evil beings that are in rebellion against God. The, the offspring of the woman will represent humanity. And so the spiritual battle in which we find ourselves is evidence of this ongoing enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And God promises that ultimately the descendant of the woman would defeat the descendant of the serpent. And so the serpent or the serpent himself will receive a fatal blow. He will be bruised on the head. Uh, but the descendant of the woman he will suffer a relatively minor wound. And so even though the serpent won the battle in the garden, he would ultimately lose the war. And the rest of the plot of the Bible is wrapped up in the identity of this offspring of the woman. Who is this one? So this is the gospel in, the, in uh, being hinted at in the very first chapter, in the very first place in Genesis 3. And so we'll talk about it when we come to redemption. But to Abraham, it was promised. God said, Abraham, one of your descendants, one of your seed, one of your offspring, through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We get to the New Testament, and very clearly, very soon, we're told Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is the descendant of Abraham through all the whom all the nations will be blessed. By his death, resurrection, and exaltation, God is going to defeat the works of the devil. And through him, all things will be restored. And so the defeat of the serpent is, is pronounced here in Genesis 3. Verse 16, the consequences for the woman. And it will involve two of the original blessings we find in Genesis 1, being fruitful and multiplying, talking about childhood, childbearing, and then the two becoming one flesh, talk about marriage. And so first of all, God says that, that 
pain will be multiplied in childbearing. And then secondly, uh, basically says, Adam and Eve, the two of you, you're going to seek to dominate and rule over each other. And this is one of the, one of the amazing things that is, is reversed by redemption. When you have a Christian couple and they are walking with Christ, instead of ruling over and dominating one another, you find that that marriage, that relationship is characterized by love, by honor, and by respect. And so this is, you, you know, when Christ has invaded a home is when husbands and wives treat each other in that way. The consequences for the man are, are detailed in verses 17 through 19. And so he would experience hardship in cultivating the ground. Before the fall, it was a delight. The word Eden means delight. It was a delight to cultivate the garden. But now there would be uh, hardship. There would be sweat and toil. And from this point forward, work would be difficult. And we'll see in coming weeks as well that redemption restores a sense of calling to our lives and even work even hard work becomes an expression of our love for, for Jesus. Paul will say in Colossians 3 about work itself, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Therefore, do your work heartily unto the Lord. And finally, we see the human condition. Uh, basically, verses 22 through 24 says that, that we are living in exile. We need to be brought back to our homeland. And so uh, in, in an act of judgment and in an act of mercy, we see that God banished this couple from the garden. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. We were introduced to this tree in chapter two, but the insinuation is, is that if he ate from that tree in his fallen condition, he would be in that fallen condition for eternity. And so to protect him from taking from that tree, he banishes him from the garden and he, he places a guard at its entrance. Look at verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Originally, he was cultivate the garden. Now he's thrust from the garden, and he's to cultivate the ground from which he was, he was taken. So, the, so, so verse 24. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. From this point forward, life will be difficult. It will be full of tragedy. It will be full of heartache. And so that's the way the world is. I'll take you back to the thing, the four words I mentioned at the first. Ought, is, can, will. Creation describes the way things ought to be by God's design. We've been, we've been talking about in Genesis 3 today is the way the world actually is due to sin. Verify this this week. This is going to be one of the easiest assignments I give you in any sermon ever. I want you to notice how fallen this world is, okay? So notice shame. You're going to see shame everywhere. Notice it in your own heart. Notice it in the lives of people all around you. Uh, notice ways that you tend to hide from God. Notice ways that you don't want to face him directly, or notice it in, in the world around you, the way people hide from God and will do almost anything to avoid his words, to avoid his gaze. 
notice the tendency to blame everybody but yourself for your misbehavior. That's a little hard to do. Notice it in other people. That's really easy. Watch the news some night. Uh, you will see shame and blame, okay? That, that's just, that's the MO of our day. And notice how people are living in exile away from the presence of God. We say, man, if that person knew God, if that person had the resources of heaven, the God of heaven, what would his or her life be like? And so notice the fallout from the fall. Lament it. Grieve what has been lost through the fall. But remember, this is only the second act of the drama of Scripture. As we continue reading the Scriptures, we're going to see an amazing thing. God would be fully justified if he abandoned his creation and he abandoned humanity altogether. One strike and you're out. But what we learn is that because God is slow to anger and he's abounding in loving kindness, he sets into motion this plan of redemption that will, will buy humanity back for himself at great personal cost. He will woo people like you and me out of exile. He will make us sons and daughters of the one true living God, and we can experience his very presence in hundreds of different ways. And guess what we find in the last chapter of the Bible? It's mentioned three times there. There we find the tree of life. And we're told that the leaves from that tree cause healing for the nations. Again, you remember creation, the fall, the, the extent of creation, the extent of fall, it has to be addressed in redemption and restoration. We find the tree of life and there we were told that those who are dressed in the righteousness of Christ, you have a right to that tree, the tree of life. You have a right to the presence of God for eternity. And so grieve the fall, but anticipate what redemption and restoration will bring as well. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've not left us clueless about what is true in this world we pray this week that we will be perceptive and we will recognize the way this world has fallen. And God, may we have clear vision. May we, we see uh, what in our own lives the way that we are filled with shame so often, the way we blame others. God, the way we hide from you, and the way we think that, that we need to uh, just settle for a lot less than your best. And God, open, open our eyes to the truth of the gospel, that in Jesus Christ we are brought near. We are made sons and daughters of the one true living God. God amazes this week. We pray that we would, would seek you out through your word, through prayer, through fellowship with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.